Hello and welcome. This is Being Human. I'm Jo Frost and in this episode, my co-host Peter Linus and I are chatting with academic and historian Dr. Carl Truman. We caught up with Carl, author of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, a few weeks ago to discuss the cultural seas we all swim in, where they come from and how we navigate the choppy waters we find ourselves in today. I hope you enjoy it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and um, where your interests lie? Sure. Well, I'm I'm an English expat. Went to uh, college. Well, went to undergraduate University of Cambridge, postgraduate University of Aberdeen. Taught in Nottingham and Aberdeen, and then moved to the States in 2001. And then I spent uh, 16 years actually at Westminster, 2001 to 2017. Then I did a year at Princeton University where I did the bulk of the work on the book uh, that we're discussing. And then at the end of that time, moved to Grove City College, which is a Christian liberal arts college, about 50 miles north of Pittsburgh in the the beautiful and very rural area of Western Pennsylvania. Wonderful. Well, you've mentioned the the book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. uh, And we are going to ask some questions about that. So I think I probably read or at least heard somewhere that Rod Dreher was involved in this. I think he wrote the foreword for it too. I mean, how did you come to write it and is Rod involved in that process? Yeah, Rod and I have been friends for some years. Uh, Rod approached me in about 2015 with the suggestion that I write a book to introduce the thought of Philip Reef, the psychological sociologist of the University of Pennsylvania, to a more popular audience. James Smith has done a similar thing with Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher. And the idea was that I would do do the equivalent for, for Philip Reef. Uh, and Justin Taylor, my editor at Crossway, was very supportive of this idea. So I, I started to work on that. And as I was working on it, became convinced that a more interesting book and a, a more useful book would actually be the application of Reef's ideas to decoding some of the changes that are going on in Western society at the moment. So that was the origins of the book. So your co-host on your podcast, Mortification of Spin, uh, Todd Pruitt, um, talks about your book as as, um, contributing to the conversation of what does it mean to be human, which is also why we are so interested in having this conversation with you. And that is that fair to say that that is almost the frame of what the book is seeking to explore, what our culture says being human is and looks like and some of the, the historical origins of how our culture has formed that answer today? Yeah, it deeply pains me to acknowledge that Todd has said anything insightful, but I think actually he's uh, 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 he's he's on to something there. Yes, the, the title of the book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, you know, what do I mean by self? We we all you know, we all have an intuitive understanding of of selfhood in terms of you know I understand I'm me and not you you understand that you're you and not me uh, but in the book I mean something a little little more profound a little more technical than that uh, what does it mean to be a human being what does it mean to to live uh, as a human being what what is the end and purpose of human life if indeed there is such a thing. Is it something we choose for ourselves? What makes us get out of bed in the morning? What does it mean to be human? That's what I'm getting at when I'm thinking about the self in this book. So I'm going to come in here. One of the things you've said, you mentioned two characters, first of all, Charles Taylor and Philip Reef. Uh, I guess some people listening might have heard of 
well, maybe some will have heard of both. Some will have heard of neither, let's be honest, um, I think. Uh, so what I understand, because one of the things we're really pushing in the podcast and in this project is to make this more accessible to people who maybe have heard these ideas out in culture, but aren't aware of where they're coming from. So um, I'm going to push you a little on Taylor and say this is this this awful question of can you do Charles Taylor in, in a tweet in a minute or two? Why is Charles Taylor considered so seminal, particularly around yeah. this idea of secularism and and I suppose I like to capture in that phrase, you know, 500 years ago, it was almost unthinkable to believe in God. Now, 500 years later, it's almost unthinkable to believe in God. The shift in the 500 years, but Charles Taylor in a minute. Taylor was input is important. It's important for people to be aware of because he helps us think in slightly different ways about things with which we might consider ourselves to be very familiar. So, for example, on the issue of, of secularization, most of us tend to think of secularization as involving the fading away of belief in God and the rise of confidence in science. Whereas Taylor says it's, it's more complicated than that, that actually the secular mindset is not one where religion is necessarily inherently implausible. It's where religion is one choice among a number of others. You've used his famous statement about it was easy to believe in 1500, almost impossible to believe today. And he would say the big difference is in 1500, you didn't have a choice. It was the air you breathed. Now the air we breathe is, is a secular air. Religion has to be a very, very definite and positive choice. So one of the reasons to, to read Taylor would be to, to have your brain cells rearranged on how you think about things like secularism and uh, atheism versus theism. He sort of complicates the matter. Second thing that Taylor does very well, and this is where I, I really found him extremely helpful in the book, is he, he's very clear that most of us do not live our lives by consciously thinking about first principles. We live our lives intuitively. Yeah, I, at the end of this podcast, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go and get a cup of tea. And guess what? I'm going to walk through the door in my office to get a cup of tea. I cannot explain to you the difference between a gas and a solid. I cannot explain to you the, 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 the way that atoms operate. But I intuitively know that there's a hole in the wall there and I can walk through it to, to get a cup of tea. And Taylor's point is that an awful lot of how we think, including how we think morally and how we think religiously is not something that we've argued or been persuaded of from first principles. It's something we've almost received by osmosis. It's shaped us in ways we're, we're unconscious of. And one of the things I wanted to do in the book was to argue that the way we think about human selfhood is not something that has been we've been argued into. It's something that technology, pop culture, literature, the way we work, all of these things have combined to give us intuitions that make us unconsciously, instinctively. So Reef, I was less familiar with, I have to say, certainly a year or two ago, and probably before reading your book, you talk, that's where the therapeutic, I guess, aspect comes from, the triumph of the therapeutic, um, that, that rather than us being socialized to fit society, it's trying to really reshape society to fit around me, the, the rise of the end. Is that a fair summary of Reith and what's he really driving at in that therapeutic idea and I suppose authenticity? 
Yeah, I, I think in some ways you you summarised it beautifully there. Reef sees a, what what we might call a sort of therapeutic reversal taking place over the last four or five hundred years, where you know in the Middle Ages, even in the Reformation, you were born into a world that was relatively fixed, and the therapists of that world were people like the priests. They were there to help you cope with the unfairness of the world around you, and they were there to shape you to fit as well as you could into that world. We're now in a situation where we we don't believe the world has a fixed shape anymore, and we think that that uh, happiness does not consist so much in us fitting into a larger pattern and serving others, so much as it consists in having our own immediate psychological needs met. I use an example in the book, uh, sort of to my own cost, to, to demonstrate the difference. You think of my grandfather. My grandfather was a working man, left school at fourteen sheet metal worker, worked in a factory till he retired at 65. Uh, if I'd ever asked my grandfather, do you get work satisfaction? One, he may not even have been familiar with the concept. You know, why would you have satisfaction from work? Might have been something that, that perplexed him. But if you explained, you know, do you think your work is worthwhile? He would almost certainly have answered and said, yeah, it, it, I, do an, uh, I get a fair day's pay for an honest day's work. And that allows me to put shoes on my children's feet and bread on the dinner table. I can feed and clothe my family and meet my commitments to other people via my job. If you ask me, I would intuitively respond, yeah, I get a real buzz out of teaching. I get a real buzz out of uh, throwing out big ideas in the classroom and watching students react to them. Seeing the light bulbs go on in students' minds as something that's been a mystery to them is suddenly explicable. I get a real buzz out of that. It gives me an inner sense of, of satisfaction. The difference between myself and my grandfather is the difference between two, two kinds of society. His is an outwardly directed one where his satisfactions, his sense of worth is really driven by what he can do for other people. My sense of satisfaction and my sense of worth is, is driven by how other people make me feel. And that's a big difference. And Reef puts it religiously. He says, you know, in the Middle Ages, nobody went to church in order to be made to feel happy. They went to church in order to have their misery explained to them. And that's, you know, <laughs> the fact that when I say that in a classroom today, the students all burst out laughing. It shows you what a different world we now live in, that that sounds like a comical commentary on the Middle Ages and not a serious observation. So in the book, you, you discuss Charles Taylor and the the formation of culture and the understanding and the journey that we've we've been on in certainly in the secular age philip reeve and the the prominence of the self and the emergence of the self as the kind of center of our universe and then then it's mcintyre because as soon as you have those sort of conversations you have to end up in morality and ethics so where does mcintyre fit into this conversation alistair mcintyre is uh, uh, again a a Catholic philosopher. The book that I've been most influenced by of his is After Virtue that he wrote in a in a sort of hiatus between being a card-carrying Marxist and being a Roman Catholic. He wrote this book where he was wrestling with what should ethical discourse, what should moral discourse look like in the modern world and why does it so often appear to go nowhere? And his answer, which I find a very plausible one, uh, is, is sort of twofold. One, he thinks that ethical discourse uh, now goes nowhere because people simply don't agree on the bigger narrative of what it means to be a human being. So often our ethical positions amount to little more than emotional preferences. 
Uh, one might say the the pro-choice and the pro-life person. Uh, McIntyre would say, e even look at the language they use, pro-choice and pro-life. This isn't the language of argument. This is the language of emotion. It's calling on it for an emotional response. And that if you've lost any vision of the Nimetta narrative, if you've lost any grand view of what it means to be a human being, then really your ethics comes down to things that you approve of, find tasteful on the one hand, and things that you disapprove of and find distasteful on the other. It's even made its way into American constitutional law. Uh, in 2013, the American Supreme Court uh, ruled that the Defense of Marriage Act, which was signed into law by President Clinton in the 1990s and, and defined marriage as being between one man and one woman, that uh, in, its, in its judgment, it, it, it determined that the Defense of Marriage Act was unconstitutional and in the uh, opinion, the majority opinion, it actually stated that the only reason for objecting to gay marriage was uh, constitutional animus. In other words, irrational bigotry designed to marginalize a particular group. So there you have emotivism being used as a kind of polemical tool. The only reason that you would maintain the religious consensus on marriage of you know, 2,000 years duration. The only reason you would maintain that in 2013 is that you're an irrational bigot, that it's just an emotional commitment you have to this. So emotivism has even made its way into, into the, the, the opinions around which the American Constitution is, is interpreted. Okay, so I promised you I would get through those three characters in about three minutes, which I feel miserable to do, because, but I think the grounding of those three was so important. Taylor's secularism, the kind of contestability of belief that leads to, I think, then the expressive individualism. Then you've got Reef and the therapeutic um, in terms of how we engage, and McIntyre, the, the fact that we've lost the ability to agree the rules of any kind of ethical debate, and therefore we lead, it leads to nothing more than emotions and sentiments. I say all that to frame because the next bit you're, we're going to go to Rousseau. I would certainly say that there is a a turn inward and a turn to the self that occurs really between the late 15th and 17th centuries. We, we can trace that turn. Rousseau, though, was particularly useful to me for a number of reasons. One, uh, Freud, who plays a central part in my narrative, was an admirer of Rousseau. The romantics that I think are culturally significant drew heavily on Rousseau. Shelley describes Rousseau as the, the only philosopher worth reading because he's the only philosopher who's also a poet. Uh, so Rousseau, I think, is, is culturally very significant. His ideas continue to shape philosophies of education. So although Rousseau doesn't emerge from nowhere, and although he's far from unique in emphasizing the, the inner life as being definitive of who we are, I do think he was peculiarly influential. So that was why I chose, chose Rousseau. Also, he's a, just on a personal level, he's thoroughly obnoxious guy who's very hard to dislike. I mean, he's fun to read, <laughs> even though he's a reprehensible human being. He's actually kind of fun to read. So uh, more entertaining than Descartes, I would say. So for those of you who, who haven't been set up as a political philosophy expert, which I do not claim to be, um, thanks for that, Peter. Really appreciate it. Um, 
What is it about Rousseau? What is it that he says that you think is so formative moving forward into Freud and into the romantics and into our current situation? Yeah, in a nutshell, Rousseau is is one of the, the great articulators of the idea that it's society or culture that screws you up. Uh, and he sees this in his own autobiography. Uh, he lays it out in his first and second discourses in a more theoretical form. But his idea is that that it's really rivalry, competition, envy, jealousy, the need to put one over on another that we find in civilized society that corrupts us. Uh, whereas if we could just get back behind the corrupting influences that come from outside and listen to the voice of nature within us, then we would be much more moral figures. We would be empathetic. And I say to the students, there's, there's some truth in that. You know, if you look out of the window and you see a, somebody being beaten up in the street and you only go to help them because the law tells you you've got to go and help them, then I would say that you're not as morally well-formed as somebody who immediately feels sympathy or empathy for the person being attacked and runs to help them. So Rousseau, I think, is, is onto something that our proper tuning of our emotions, a proper tuning of that inner space is important for being a fully rounded moral human being. His importance for Freud, I think, in some ways, is that Freud capitalizes on that inner space. But as Marx flips Hegel on his head, so Freud sort of flips Rousseau on his head. And Freud says, yeah, you are your inner space, but guess what? You're not a noble savage as the, you know, the term is often used to, for, for Rousseau's sort of ideal man. You're not a noble savage. You're a savage savage. It's the dark desires of the it that really shape who you are. So Rousseau is part of that steady authorizing of the inner space that I think culminates in modern identity politics via Freud uh, and 20th century Marxism. I just find it really interesting, this idea that the world out there corrupts me, but I am pure and I am noble. And if I can just get away from the corrupting forces around me, then I will do fine. And I, I think we even see that whispered into our churches when we, we, um, we make God our healer and our restorer, but we don't necessarily come to God for our forgiveness or recognise actually the responsibility of the self in some of these uh, savagery um, notions and that actually as a culture we are very uncomfortable with owning our own fallenness we're only really comfortable in owning the systemic fallenness that's almost inflicted on us yeah i think you're correct and we see that in the language of brokenness that is often used in churches today now you know you, people can we, we are broken people well think about brokenness is generally you Things are broken by other people. You know, a mug doesn't break itself. A mug is broken when you drop, when somebody drops it on the floor. Brokenness, I think, can be, I don't want to deny that, yeah, human humanity is broken. But humanity is broken because humanity has broken itself. And the language, I think, can sometimes be used, I say it's not necessarily inappropriate language, but it can sometimes be used to smuggle in, or, or should I say better, smuggle out notions of responsibility for that. One of the things we picked up in our kind of last series, we were looking at the biblical overview and the foundation stories. And we looked into, we compared or contrasted, I suppose, engaged with Stephen Fry in terms of his writings and things that he said, the, the British comedian. 
But in his own podcast, he had won the seven deadly sins. And he talked about this. We talk a lot about brokenness. We talk a lot about what other people have done. The problem with the world, Stephen Fry said, is me, meaning himself, rather than me, Peter Lance. And, and and the problem is sin. There's a name for it. But he said most people will recoil and think, what are you doing, Stephen, using a word like that? Yeah. And he said, but that's the reality. Like, there is there is a problem. Why don't we just name it what it is? And you know, we were saying, we don't. it's not that we're agreeing suddenly with everything he said, but it was a fascinating kind of insight he seemed to have in the podcast as he talked about the problems in the world and saying, we need to own them and name them and put something on it. He got all the way through. And then at the end of it, he basically said that he lies in bed at night, reflects upon his day, comes so close to something like a confession, but there's nothing else. All he can do is talk about the problems. And then that's it at the end of the day. He offloads them into nothingness. Yeah, um, yeah. And we just reflected on how that journey he was on and, and the inability to name the problem at times. Yeah, that's fascinating insights. And, uh, you know, there he sounds very much like the the kind of character that Charles Taylor describes at points in a secular age where, you know, who doesn't believe in God, but misses him, you know, that, that he feels the need for some kind of forgiveness. And yet there is no forgiveness to be had because there is no God. In his work, The Gay Science, he starts his famous section that culminates in the death of God, the madman death of God scene. He starts off by telling this story uh, of Buddha. He says, you know, Buddha died. And for 400 years after his death, it said that his shadow, a great scary shadow, stayed on the wall of the cave, frightening people. And he says, we have our shadows too. And what he's really saying there is the Enlightenment's got rid of God. He got rid of God. Kant sort of keeps him in a very weak form that we sort of have to believe in him to keep everything stable. But beyond that, we, we don't need God at all. Nietzsche is essentially saying, come on, guys, if we don't need God, then we've got to get rid of everything that rests upon God as well. And this idea of human nature, there is, you know, he says, there is no I behind the stuff that you think and do. There is, there is nothing more than, than what you make yourself there. And so what Nietzsche does really is, is he detaches, uh, we might say, that inner world from any kind of moral, objective, transcendent moral framework whatsoever. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that Freud was very hesitant to read Nietzsche because he was terrified that Nietzsche had anticipated philosophically so much of what he argued for psychologically. Nietzsche really says, you know, God's gone. We can't use him as an excuse anymore. We can't use him to rationalize doing X rather than Y. We have to step up. We have to become gods. And are you up to the challenge? And Nietzsche's view is not many are going to be up to the challenge. Most are just going to go along with the herd. But maybe the time has come for a few great individuals to break with the herd and become self-creators. So if God's dead, if we have killed God, then we have to become God ourselves. There are consequences to that. We have to own those. And he's saying most people don't, I think, if I have understood. And the consequences are we have to become God, which means we can do the things you've said. We can declare ourselves to be who we want. But that that's the consequence of there being no God. But it's yeah. interesting, isn't it? Because he doesn't stop. Well, our society hasn't stopped there because you used a really interesting word there. You used the word will as if it's a choice. And, and Nietzsche and such and, and, and so many of the, the postmodernists were talking of will and they were talking of choice. And yet Freud almost robs our inner self of that choice. And actually, 
I think that's almost what we're seeing more of today is the absence of choice that I've got to be true to myself. Myself is governing me. It isn't a choice that I'm doing. I'm just having to discover my authentic self. It's a discovery process rather than a will. And I find that really interesting. So is is, is that where Freud steps in at that point? I think so. Uh, I mean, I, I do think there are all kinds of tensions in play in modern thinking. And I think you put your finger on one there. And we see this bubbling up in the debates about sexual identity routinely. You know, is it a choice or is it a fixed identity? And sometimes it seems, depending on the political question being asked, depends on which side of the line the lobby groups will come down on that one. So, for example, if we're talking about uh, uh, conversion therapy, then it becomes fixed. It's not a matter of choice. If we're talking, if we try to introduce any sort of moral framework, however, it becomes a matter of personal choice and something of, of fluidity. So I think, uh, Joe, you you put your finger on something uh, on very profound there. And of course, what Freud does in an odd way is Freud uses science and, and, and talks in the language of objective science to put forward ideas that ultimately completely subvert science. One of the things I say to the students in class is, you know, we can do a Freud on Freud. Freud goes after religion as the last great illusion. But what happens if psychology is the last great illusion? What happens if Freud is arguing this way because he really didn't like the anti-Semitism anti of the Roman Catholic Church in the Vienna where he grew up? And his polemic of religion and his dismissal of religion is really driven by his own subjective psychological states. So, uh, again, I, I think you're pointing to a, a real tension within modern thinking there. Uh, are, we, are we totally free or, are we, or do we totally belong? One could put it that way. It, it's a kind of difficult balance between those two. And even without going to the sexuality in the sense of same-sex attraction, you know, even somebody having an affair, I've heard the language of, but to be authentic to who I am, I've fallen in love with somebody else. So yeah. it's, it's I, I don't even, would they go as far? This sort of language is almost, it, it's, it's, the only way to be authentic is to go off with this new person and therefore I leave my commitments, my marriage commitments behind because that's being authentic to who I really am. These are the feelings that I have. I can't change those feelings this is who I am, and I must pursue those feelings to be true to myself. And that speaks of the authorization of feelings. But uh, th there's this sense that, that authenticity requires me to act outwardly according to my inward instincts. I would say that is a wrong notion of authenticity that expressive individualism has fed us with. In actual fact, the real person is the one who acknowledges their dependence and relation to other people. And we all understand that to some extent. You know, we don't want serial killers going around and being authentic because that's going to involve them doing incredible damage to other people. And on that level, we say, no, 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 the, 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 the serial killer needs help to be forced to conform to the conventions of society. So I would want to say that, that we're operating with a, a fundamentally wrong view of authenticity there. Take your point, but the, the problem is that leads to all kinds of, of moral problems and raises serious questions about the, the general coherence of society as well. Tracks back to Rousseau's idea that you know, man is born free and everywhere is in chains. You know, just because an a statement is self-evident nonsense doesn't mean that it can't grip the imagination. That's self-evident nonsense. 
of all creatures on the face of the earth, human beings are born remarkably dependent. You know, if if my parents had, after I'd popped out of my my mother's tummy, if my parents had just left me, you know, or take me out, and left me on the the floor of a forest somewhere, I'd have been dead within 36 hours. Utterly dependent upon other human beings, and throughout our lives. We, are, we, we have differing degrees of dependency on others. So I'd want to say that whole notion of authenticity might appeal to our desire for, I'd say, sinful autonomy, but is ultimately incoherent as a way of thinking about our personhood. I do think that's one of the flashpoints within the church at the minute. You'll have a younger generation saying, I want to be authentic, an older generation sometimes a bit dismissive of that because there's a certain sense of, oh, but that's just an excuse to do what you like. You're like, well, hold on, we need to reconcile or wrestle these things with better understanding. Yeah, I would agree. And of course, I don't, I should probably have included this book, but didn't. The same time as people like Rousseau are moving inward. You have Jonathan Edwards writing the religious affections. You know, the 18th century is marked by both religious, a-religious and irreligious people moving inward. And I think one of the things we need to recapture in the church is the notion of, you know, sounds odd to put it this way, but genuine authenticity. And some of that does require us to acknowledge the importance of that inner space. But some of it also requires us to acknowledge the, the authority and the importance of, of externalities, of external structures, of institutions. And it's a delicate balance. And I, I think on the whole, society today is listed far too far in the direction of, of the inner. But uh, true to say, you know, we, we call inauthentic people hypocrites for a reason. We, we don't like that. On the other hand, we want to say, yeah, we want to, we want to give expression to that inner voice. But we want to make sure that that inner voice is correctly formed relative to external transcendent standards of morality, commitment, et cetera, et cetera. It's interesting to hear you talk about the, the authentic self and the ultimate incoherence when, it, when we try and form a society or a culture um, or even a community around that notion. The way I see it play out in our society is the balancing, however, of that desire to be authentic. You do you, whatever makes you happy, um, be true to you, I'm just living my best self, all those kind of la those language pieces that we hear. But they are coupled with as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. And as long as it doesn't harm anyone. Yeah. There is yeah. um there is a reciprocal reciprocation. I'll go yeah. with that. Um between the two that says actually there are uh cultural norms that we tolerate. Yeah. Um now does that how do you challenge that notion of well, we've tolerated some restrictions and actually say, no, but fundamentally we've missed something by accepting the um, superiority of the inner self and not allowing space for the external as well. H how do we tackle that? Yeah, that's a very hard one. And I think that connects to a shift that I, I see taking place politically in the middle of the 20th century, where that psychological space starts to become extremely important for notions of oppression and liberation, that being affirmed in who you think you are inwardly becomes part of what is seen of as political liberation. Again, if you go back to Thomas Jefferson, 
uh, in the United States, uh, it, it makes this statement that is so emblematic of his day. Talking about freedom of religion, he says, you know, what does it matter if my neighbor believes in one God or 20 gods or no God at all? It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. And I use that in class with the students. And I say, in, in um, Jefferson's world, he's thinking there of freedom as freedom to own property, and freedom not to be beaten up, to find sort of a better word of it. You know, it's his body and his property. Those are the things that define his freedom. We now live in a world where the psychological space is important. So somebody today would say, well, you know, disagreeing with gay marriage, okay, it doesn't pick your pocket uh, or, break, or, or break my leg, but it hurts me. It really makes me feel inauthentic that you don't accept my marriage. It makes me feel that I'm a pariah. It makes me feel bad about myself. It stops me flourishing psychologically in the world I'm in. And that's kind of the difficulty we're in now. And where it becomes very difficult is that this sort of inner space psychology is sort of infinitely fungible, if you like. You can apply it to anything. And what it means is that, that somebody has to adjudicate which identities are legitimate and which are illegitimate. Um, we've already talked of serial killers. They're illegitimate. They, they can't be authentic on their terms. But then when you come to LGBTQ stuff, for example, it starts to get trickier at this point. And I think a lot of Christians 10, 15 years ago took the view, and, I, and I'm not unsympathetic to this, that uh, you know what goes on in the privacy of somebody's bedroom, that's not the government's. The government doesn't police that. We don't want the government policing that kind of stuff that's very intrusive which points towards a sort of a position of tolerance okay if you want to be an lgbtq person we'll tolerate you the problem with that of course is that to tolerate somebody is is not really to fully accept them you know we tolerate annoying relatives because they're our relatives but we don't talk to them at parties or we, we keep the conversation as short as possible we don't go out of our way to affirm them, to welcome them, to value them. And I think that's the situation that religious conservatives now find themselves in is, you know, we disagree with certain behaviors. Certain groups in society have decided that these behaviors are a core part of their identity. And so when we disagree with those behaviors, what we are seen to be doing is disagreeing with identities. And that then becomes oppressive psychologically oppressive objecting to gay marriage or or, or a trans person becomes in, in the modern world the moral equivalent of, of racism uh, and most christians would say you know racism is a bad thing and we do want rules about racism in public places etc well when you when you've got this fungible psychological oppression idea then lgbtq stuff fits into that as well and that's why i think what we're seeing now the latest worrying stage of what's going on is very libertarian views of human identity are fostering rather authoritarian forms of governments in order to to try to police this thing and keep society on a on a on a stable sort of footing So uh, let me just do two things. Maybe the journey for our runner, I think, is, is encapsulated in a sentence you use of the psychologized self leading, I think, to the sexualized self and then the politicized self, which is taking you, uh, this is my best summary, the turn inward. So we're all about the self. 
Freud sexualizes that, so it all becomes about sex, even though a lot of his science, if we want to say that, has been actually disputed uh, or pushed back on. It's still the water we swim in, in reality. And then his followers took that and made that a political thing. So sex is not a private act. It becomes part of our identity. We are all defined by that. And that's what brings, I think, Rousseau through to DG, through to Freud, through to where we are today, is what we're meeting is the, the grandchildren, if you like, of all these people coming together. And that's how it goes. So psychologized becomes sexualized, becomes politicized. And the challenge we have, I think the description is fantastic. The challenge is what do we do? How do we respond well into that space? And I know we have only a few minutes left, so it's kind of where I want to turn just as we end is how do we how do we respond to these challenges? Yeah, well, you might have noticed that was the shortest chapter in my book. Asked <laughs> <laughs> to call me recently, he said I was waiting for the positive proposals, and they were like done in three seconds. <laughs> I didn't well, want to brutally say that, but yes. <laughs> hey, I'm a historian. I explain the past. I do not predict the future. Uh, but I, I think there are some. First of all, I'd want to say I'm not sure it's a one size fits all here for reason that, that I hope will become become clear. First of all, I do think that pastors and Christians, we need a mean we need to make a fundamental distinction always between what I would call the cultural political movement, the LGBTQ plus movement, or the sexual revolution, and the individuals. So Politically, I think we should argue strongly against LGBTQ type of stuff. On the other hand, I think when we have individuals in our congregations for whom this is their issue, this is what they're struggling with, this is what they're finding so painful, we need to deal with such people with, with, with grace, with love, with concern. We need to listen to what they're saying. We need to care for them. Secondly, I think the church needs to realize that, uh, and this is probably harder sell in America than it is in, in the UK. Uh, the church needs to realize that she's not going to be at the center of the culture anymore. She's going to be on the margins now. now the UK have been experiencing that for, for a generation or two now. I don't remember a time in my Christian life, and I've been a Christian for nearly 40 years, when the church was really central to, to British cultural life. Uh, I think the church needs to realize that she's going to be somewhat marginal. I think the church should lament that, on one level, but on another level, I think should also realize that that's an opportunity. What's it an opportunity for? It's an opportunity to become a stronger community. History indicates that groups shunted to the margins of cultures tend to become very self-reliant, very strong. Uh, the Jews in Europe would be one good example throughout the Middle Ages and then on into the modern age. The great nonconformists uh, in the 19th century, many of the great British industrialists came out of nonconformist families because it was all they could do. Uh, they couldn't be part of the establishment, but they could make stuff. I think the church needs to see the coming times as an opportunity to become a tight knit community. And I think that will help because one of the things I became convinced of in writing the book is we're heading to a time where society is crumbling. Communities are crumbling. It's a crazy world where the phrase, he pledged allegiance to ISIS online, makes sense. That says something about the weakness of the communities we're living in at the moment, that we have kids doing crazy stuff like that. I think if the church can be a strong community, then the church can be that place where people can go, I don't want to sound therapeutic here, but people can go to find out, find themselves, find out who they really are. So I, I would want to say, for, for particularly for conservative evangelical churches, we've often done doctrine pretty well, and we mustn't stop doing that. 
But we also need to accent the community aspect of churches now, because if your identity, if your strongest identity is driven by the strongest community to which you belong, then the church needs to make sure it's the strongest community to which people belong. And I think there's a huge challenge in this moment uh, where churches can't gather in the same way uh, around that for one thing. But but I want to do you think the church has sufficiently sufficiently recognized its own complicity in this? I mean, Taylor would say, I think that the, the Reformation led to the rational, you know, much more rational view of faith at times, the disenchanting of faith in a way that the profound individualism the church has fed into in its consumer driven culture and, and a very individualistic narrative around salvation often. Have we sufficiently owned that? And, and is that part of our, our move forward as well? Because it's easy to say the culture did this to us. It yeah, sounds a bit yeah. passive. I don't think you do say that in the book, but I do think that's a read that some people seem to have. So I suppose yeah, I want to push on that a little. Yeah, well, in the book, I do say that the church is complicit in what's gone on. Uh, apart from anything else, we all choose where we go to church now. You know, we have a choice and that kind of puts us at the consumer center. Uh, one could expand that and say, well, look at some of the liturgies. And by liturgies, I just mean anything that's said in the church service. Look at the, the praise songs that often focus upon me and my needs. Uh, look at the reasons why people leave churches. And the minister said something I disagreed with. Or the minister doesn't dress in the way that I'd like him to dress. Or, you know, I don't like the decor. People leave churches for extremely trivial reasons, all of which speak to this me-centered, expressive individual uh, context. Uh, and I, I think, you know, the church is very complicit in this. And one of the things I was hoping the book would do would be at least head off the the kind of pharisaical prayer. You know, we thank you, Lord, that we're not like other men, like the LGBTQ activists over there who've got into expressive individualism, that our first thought would be, how are we complicit in this? And that makes it hard. You know, how do we move forward from this? That's hard because I like religious freedom. I want to live in a world where there is religious freedom. As soon as you have religious freedom, religion becomes a choice. You have a variety of churches to choose from. And that tilts heavily towards making me a consumer in terms of my religion in a way that would have been unknown in the Middle Ages. So I'm not sure on that level that there's no easy fix. And I think some of it has to come down to self-discipline. People, when they take membership vows, have to take them as seriously as they take their marriage vows. These are vows taken before God. doesn't mean that you need to stick with this church forever, but it does mean that if you leave this church, there are appropriate ways of leaving and appropriate reasons to leave and inappropriate ways of leaving and inappropriate reasons to leave. That requires considerable self-discipline on our part. I wonder um, whether, in the, in the same way you were critiquing tolerance, and I, I still remember an amazing conversation I had with a friend of mine over exactly that point on tolerance and how we settled for tolerance when God's, God offers us grace. And um, and similarly, when it comes to authenticity, we settle for authenticity when God offers us integrity and actually bringing our, our being into alignment, not just our body, soul and spirit, but our body, soul and spirit with our creator. And I wonder if that's an opportunity for us in the church to not merely critique or distance or even just simply to confess where we have, have accepted authenticity and the, the privilege of the self, but actually to push forward and say, we're not going to settle here, but we are going to push into integrity, to alignment, to coming back into who God says we are and who we are made to be in him. Um, because yeah, I, think I think that offers something beautiful. 
That's a great way of putting it. I mean, one of the examples I use in class is I, I, I throw out the idea of love to the students and say, you know, what does love look like? Well, and they're all young kids, some of them getting married. They're, I teach the seniors, some of them are always getting married the summer after graduation. And I you know, say, so, you know, love can look like a wedding and that's great. But what about when, you know, 50 years from now, one of you has Alzheimer's and the other one is caring for you day by day? Uh, even for your most, you know, humiliating bodily functions, you're dependent upon somebody else. Um, is that not a stronger portrait of love? And then I sort of parlay it to the idea of authenticity. So let's think about authenticity then. What happens if in that context you say, well, actually, I've fallen in love with the woman next door. I'm going to go off and live with her and abandon my, my Alzheimer-ridden wife. What kind of authenticity is that? And I think when we start thinking along those terms and, again, realize that we are not free creatures, but we are dependent creatures and that there are others dependent upon us, we can reframe our notion of authenticity in a way that I think accepts those external authorities that you're, you're pointing to, Joe. So I would say, yeah, this is a time for the church to, to think very hard about uh, where we go from here and how we need to reframe ourselves. I think probably easier, ironically, in the UK. In America, it's very hard for Christians. The Christians have lost all of the power they had in the space of 10, 15 years in my time here. It's hard when something is torn away from you that you think belongs to you. Uh, and we in the, in the States at the moment are in the panic mourning phase, I would say. I think in the UK, it's been going on for much longer, and, and there's a real chance here for Christians in the UK now to, to, to think beyond the immediate pain, if you like, and look at what do we need to do in order to rebuild? What do we need to confess? What do we need to reorient ourselves towards at this point? Well, that seems like a really appropriate place to leave it. As you can probably guess, I could be here all day, evening in my world chatting about this. Um, I want to say again that um, the rise and triumph of the modern self, I found an incredibly helpful guide to understanding aspects of our culture. I find this conversation, uh, again, really refreshing and enlightening to open that up. Just in terms of, I think you said, the cultural amnesia is one of the parts of the subtitle, that water that we swim in. This is the reality. And I would re you kind of push that again when people are saying, I'm not sure I need to know this conversation, what's going on. Your kids are in this world, you're in this world, our entire education system, our larger firms, the big consulting firms, the big law firms, wherever it is, the government institutions, they are all, in my view, absolutely swimming in the water that you're identifying here. And we have to understand if we're going to engage. And I do think the church in this season, we've all said it's that community and a profoundly individualistic culture. What does it look like to sacrifice and to submit ourselves into a community? Uh, and we have found that really challenging during this season of COVID where we haven't been able to gather mm -hmm. in the traditional sense of community. And and for some, uh, for ho hopefully most of that has heightened the need to regather in that sense, to come together afresh as a community, because it seems to me that the church is is the sign in this moment um, uh, that we want to be pointing towards. Carl, thank you so much uh, for your time, uh, for for chatting with us. This has been absolutely immense. We've absolutely loved it. Um, uh, your Mortification of Spin is another place where you can people can find out about you on the podcast and your book again, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self from Crossway. Thanks for having me on. So there you go. I do hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you'd like to find out more about Carl, podcast and book, you'll find out all of that information in today's show notes. For more information about Being Human, do visit beinghumanproject.co.uk, where you can find out all about what we're up to, previous seasons from Being Human podcast, articles from resources and information on what's coming next. 
And don't forget to subscribe to Being Human wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, take care and God bless. Bye.